What drives you? What inspires you? Let's ignite your why. Welcome to Ignite Your Why podcast. I'm your host, Austin Tigellet, and we're here to have genuine conversations with authentic people to help amplify their voice and figure out what ignites their why. Today's guest is Vince McCarty. He was born in Bakersfield, California, and raised in Las Vegas, Nevada. Currently, he resides in Northern Kentucky, where he is a union electrician, a substance abuse recovery advocate, and a huge gym rat. Vince, how are you doing today? I'm a huge gym rat. That's how I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, literally, like, I'm telling you guys, if you go to this dude's Instagram, you will always see his post about being in the gym. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, fit fam, gym motivation, come on. Uh, I think it might help somebody, uh, but it's, like, crucial for me to see my progress. Uh, Yeah, we've worked out together. I know, but thinking of fitness just makes me, like, exhausted. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean? You do Orange Theory, and uh, I'm not fit enough for Orange Theory. Orange Theory is fun, though. Like, for me, like, I'm not a big, like, weightlifter. Yes. So, like, I'm very into, like, cardio and, like, all of that stuff. Yeah, I don't have the stamina. So Orange Theory is just, like, you got the rower, you got the floor, and you got your tread. So it's, like, a hit workout. So you get all of the above. Okay, then. So it's very interesting. I'm not looking forward to tomorrow. Yeah. Got that 12-minute tread run, but... Yeah. It's a benchmark, so it's, like, you got to see how far you can run in 12 minutes. It's like Olympic qualifiers, right? No. Come on. <laughs> you know, like, that. I always dreamed about being in the Olympics as a kid. Me too! Because I thought it would be super dope. What event? See, that's the thing. I just didn't care. I just wanted to go to the Olympics. I want to run a 400 meter, maybe an 800 meter. Uh, and you don't have stamina. <laughs> I know. I know. I, I did track and field in high school, and I, I thought I was pretty good at it. See, if I did it, it would probably be for, like, I would want it to be for basketball. But... I quit at the age of, like, 16, so, like... No, you could get on the basketball. I'm not that good. No, you can get on the basketball. (laughs) But anyways, let's just hop straight into this, man. Uh, So what is your story? Who is Vince McCarty? That is an interesting question. So I was born in Southern California, Bakersfield. Small town, Kern County, uh, maybe two hours from Los Angeles. My parents, I don't really remember them together when I was young. I have uh, just uh, growing up in Bakersfield, life was all right. You know, I I lived there until I was 12 years old. So and uh, we grew up poor, but I really didn't recognize that until I got older. Like uh, I went to a pretty good school. Um, We were zoned like where my grandma lived. So it was like a nicer school than where I was supposed to go to. I didn't have many friends. So My neighborhood was far from where my school was. So everybody that went to my school didn't live in my neighborhood. So I really never had that like, oh, finish homework, go outside and go hang out with all my friends from school. So, yeah, I I stayed home a lot. I, I, I read books. I watched TV. And yeah, I mean, I just didn't notice like, oh, that's, that's kind of weird. Like, oh, this kid really doesn't have any friends. But I had great grades. 
I was, I was pretty... I would assume, because, like, if you're not going outside and playing with friends and just, like, not really having that social aspect outside of school, you read books. Yeah. I couldn't do that as a kid. Yeah, so... What did you like to read? Um, 12 years old, I'm reading everything Goosebumps, 100%. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Goosebumps. Do you remember those Choose Your Own Adventure books? No, I told you I didn't read. Okay. <laughs> so I, like, I remember Goosebumps. But yeah. I also remember uh, Junie B. Jones. Do you remember that? I don't. Uh, Junie B. Jones, and then she went to kindergarten. She was in kindergarten, and they had Junie B. Jones in first grade. You always have to look it up one day. Okay. <laughs> okay. I remember reading those books. Yeah. But other than that, I didn't read them at home. I read them at school. So choose your own adventure books, or you go to this page. And it says, oh, if you want to uh, go find out what that loud noise is downstairs, go to page 62. But if you'd rather hide under your cover, go to back to page 14. And you read page 14 and it gives you like, oh, this is a scenario now. Flip to this page. And you, it's, it was exciting. And your face is like, oh, that's not really that exciting. It's, I, I'm thinking of something. So, like, when you're saying that, I think of, like, those, like, in high school when people would, like, write in the textbooks, like, flip to this page. <laughs> and then you flip to another page. And at the end, it just says, like, oh, like, you're a bitch or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I did know, not like, <laughs> go to that high school. <laughs> Literally, like, it was just, like, it could be, like, a history book. And, like, it would just be, like, oh, flip to page, like, 142. Yeah. And then it's, like, oh, turn to page, like, 67. Yeah. And it's, like, back and forth. And at the end, it's something so stupid. Yeah. If I ever made one of those, I'd probably just be, like, I'm so glad I just wasted all your time flipping through all these pages. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I read books. I, uh, I I watched, like, CNN a lot. I loved watching CNN when I was young. The and news. I, that is so weird. I watched this program now that I realized was probably problematic back then. Uh, this news anchor, her name is Nancy Grace. Uh, she was like an attorney and an author. And I like thought she was super cool. And uh, every time there was a big like murder uh, in the country, like she would like 24-7 her program would just hamper on every single detail. And I... Uh, I would watch every day, like, for the updates, you know, like, I remember Casey Anthony or Scott Peterson, and she would just talk about these people, and I'd just be, like, so engaged, and now when I, I think about that, I'm like, I wonder if those people really got a fair trial, you know, because there was so much publicity, and, uh, yeah, she was entertaining, and uh, now that I think about it, I'm like, Nothing ever really happened on the show, but... Uh, it's the news. Yes! Nothing! <laughs> yes! I feel like news anchors and stuff are the... It's like the one job where you can be wrong and not get in trouble. Yeah. Like the weatherman. Like, he can be wrong all the time. Yeah, he can be. It's gonna rain tomorrow and then it's sunny. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that one job where it's like, oh... It's not 100% accurate. <laughs> <laughs> so you, earlier you were talking about growing up in Bakersfield. And at yeah. the age of 12, you moved to Vegas. Yes, we did move to Las Vegas. So uh, what was that like for you? So my mom met a guy 
and um, they were together, never married. They were together for, I mean, 10, 15 years, maybe. And uh, so this is my new stepdad. Uh, at this time, I had two sisters. One sister, she's two years younger than me. Uh, and another sister, she's nine years younger than me. My stepdad had four kids. And so all of us moved from California to Las Vegas. Now, my life in California, yes, we grew up like on welfare. And so I never really noticed. Uh, we always had food in the house. Uh, I mean, we lived in a couple places, but there was never like evictions or things yeah. like that. And then when we moved to Las Vegas, it was a whole different ballpark i mean las vegas is unlike any other city have have you been there never been okay uh it's on the bucket list though <laughs> yeah i mean it doesn't even have to be on the bucket list like there's just so much to do like you will keep going back and not do enough so bakersfield is this place that i had known you know it's my home southern california two hours from los angeles like okay move to this big city and it's really a small place just with a lot of people and a lot of things to do. So we were on welfare in California. My stepdad, he made too much money for us to be on welfare. So we were poor, though. I mean, seven kids and in an apartment. And uh, my mom stayed home to watch us. And uh, he's a mechanic. And uh, yeah, there are a lot of times where it's just like, oh, there's nothing to eat. And you know, I just remember feeling like growing up and my mom having these conversations with me and my sister, like feeling trapped and not knowing what to do, like uh, not having the resources to get out of this situation and just having like this uh, infinite capacity of for hope to think that things are going to get better. And I had this hope that things would get better, like as soon as I turned 16, like I was going to get a job and start helping out. And there was never going to be a point to where I was hungry, you know, or I couldn't do something. Like once I started having friends, like, oh, now I need a job if I want to do these things. Like, oh, if I want to pay for these AP tests, I have to have a job. If I want to take these tests, if I want to apply for college, I have to have a job if I want to fill out these applications. So these are the things that are running through my mind at a young age. And uh, like, I really felt like, okay, if we're, if I want to succeed, like I'm going to have to contribute, which is not a bad place to be. And I mean, and they stayed together for, uh, I mean, most of my life, you know, eventually they broke up and uh, she just had to build her life from like the bottom up. And, uh, I'm so grateful for her. Um, and now that I'm older, I'm grateful for that experience because it really taught me like, I don't need much in my life, especially, uh, if there are people around me who love me, it's just so striking because when I became of age, like middle school, high school, I started to really recognize like how much we didn't have. And that was frustrating to me at the time. But now it's just like, oh, okay, like I don't have to be that guy that has the newest, latest and greatest this and that. Um, 
and uh, I can still be myself and I can still be happy and uh, I can still uh, contribute to the world. I think it just goes to show that no matter what experience you go through, there's always like a lesson behind it. Yes. So whether it's like something positive that happens or something negative, there's always a lesson that comes along with that. Yeah. And it's kind of growing up, you think things are normal until you're exposed to something different. So it's like when you're seeing something every day, you're like, oh, this is normal. And then as you move to Las Vegas, you were exposed to a completely different lifestyle, a completely different culture. And you're seeing things that like may not be normal to you. You're like, huh, this exists. So it's kind of like being, that's why people always say like travel, like get out. Like there's so much more to the world than like what's here. And like, that's kind of how I see things is like, you're always going to have new experiences. It's kind of like starting a new job. When you start a new job, you're very like timid and scared. And it's like very, it's like, oh, like. I don't want to mess up. Like, I don't want people to think me of a, think about me a certain way. And it's right. kind of like, you have all of these thoughts that like just run anxiety. And it's like, how do I get out of this place? How do I better myself? And I think that's kind of like what I got from you is like, you saw like where you and your family were and you wanted to help get you out of that hole. Yes. Whether it was like getting a job or going to college or doing whatever it may be. You just didn't want that lifestyle for your family and you wanted to help get to that next point. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, and I like the way you put that. I had this uh, journal that I used to write in every single day and uh, I would write out my plans for (laughs) world domination. And uh, it's just, uh, I would flip through those pages and uh, I would just find hope, I guess, like, okay, like this is where we were when I wrote this and now we're doing better and just incrementally, uh, I mean, we're doing better, but now like, okay, now that I'm older, I can do something about this situation, you know, so. I definitely get it. It makes complete sense to me. Yeah. It's kind of just like, you're always looking for that next step. And it kind of wants me to lead into the next segment of like this podcast episode. Okay. Which is my next question is, uh, we talked about earlier how you were a substance abuse recovery advocate. Um, so my question for you is, what inspires you? But more importantly, what ignites that why? Uh, when you put it like that, substance abuse recovery advocate, it makes it sound official. <laughs> um, so what brings that about? Um, so my sobriety date is January 28, 2016. Um, and uh, I guess I can start to maybe where I started getting high. Um, share a story, man. Okay. Share what you want to share, man. So, yeah, I mean, obviously something had to bring me to this point where I would have a sobriety date. So when I started working, I moved out of my mom's house when I was 18 and I felt like, okay, I know the way that the world works. You know, I'm 18. I'm invincible. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of people feel that way. It's like, I'm officially an adult. Like I can do what I want. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I felt like, okay, like I'm one less mouth to feed. Uh, I have two jobs. Like by the time I graduated high school, had no plans for world domination. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I did not know, like, uh, I really didn't know how it was like college was going to work or if I should go to the military. Like there were all these like, oh, infinite possibilities. 
which is crazy to me because I feel like everyone expects an 18-year-old to know exactly what they want to do with their life. Yes. And it's so stressful because I feel like when I graduated, I was like, I knew I was going to college. Yeah. But I didn't know exactly what I wanted How to do. T- yeah. And here I am as a 25-year-old man, and I still don't know exactly what I want to do. Every day it changes. So it's just like, I know I want to do something I'm passionate about. Yes. That's all I know. So I, I do want to talk about that because you did describe me as a union electrician. And sometimes I forget. I'm like, oh, that is <laughs> what I do. Um, like I went to a nice high school. It's called Advanced Technologies Academy. It's like a magnet school. We call it like the number one high school in Nevada. I, I don't know really what that means, but it's the number one high school in Nevada. Okay. <laughs> and uh, all my friends, super smart. Uh, they're doing great. And, uh, I, college was just going to happen for me. I had no idea how to make that happen. Uh, fast forward to 2007, I graduate. And, uh, at this time I was getting high a little bit, uh, started off doing ecstasy just, uh, every now and then. And then I would do some Coke or something. And, uh, you know, and I thought I was cool and, and nobody that I went to school with really thought that was cool. <laughs> um, and uh, this school had kids from all over the city. And so, like, nobody lived, like, in the same neighborhood that I lived in. And uh, I did feel somewhat just, like, outside, especially also, like, being gay. I came out when I was 14. And so all my friends in high school knew. And so I'm... I'm I mean, and there were other gay kids in school with me, but I did feel like, okay, me navigating the world is is almost insurmountable. I'm poor. I'm gay. Uh, I don't really have, like, direction. I'm indecisive as everything. And so, uh, yeah, when I turned 18, moved out, and uh, I found some people who like to party the way that I wanted to party. And uh, yeah, I started taking painkillers and uh, it gave me that sense of like, it made me aggressive. Like, oh, I'm this guy and everybody likes me. And I would just not stop talking and, you know, super funny. And I would say offensive things, but I thought they were funny. I thought I was being cool. And um, yeah, uh, my painkiller addiction, I mean, it morphed into being addicted to OxyContin. I mean, just the way the story goes, OxyContin just became hard to find and too expensive. And so in uh, in the story comes heroin, you know, black tar heroin. And um, yeah, uh, there was a time where I started doing pills that... I knew that I was addicted. Like I tried to stop for two, three days and it just, I just couldn't break that, like that craving. It started out as just having fun, but then it was just like, oh, I need this. And once I started taking those pills that to need them, right, it wasn't like I was getting high anymore. I'm just doing this so I'm not restless, irritable and discontented. And everybody around me was doing pretty much the same thing. And we couldn't find any Oxycontin at the time. And uh, we started doing heroin. And by the time that I started doing heroin, I'd already knew, like, oh, like, I'm done. Like, I'm never going to get out of this hole. Uh, 
it there was like a lot of shame. I mean, my family, you know, my mom, uh, certainly not my dad. Like nobody knew how bad I was off. I mean, I'm 18, 19 and every day is a cycle. So wake up, figure out how to get money to get high, get high and do the same thing all over again. And now when I look back on those days, I think, how did I occupy my time? I have no idea. Uh, or just like, I mean, just like the cunning and resourcefulness it, it would take for me to <laughs> get money. Like, I'm like, how come I don't have ideas on how to make money now <laughs> that I'm sober uh, and a little bit older? Because, uh, yeah, uh, when I was younger, it was just like, like a hustle, you know, especially after I got fired from my jobs and, you know, eventually I got evicted out of my apartment, moved back into my mom's apartment. And, uh, I told her I was sick, you know, I told her I had flu and, uh, I laid on her couch for about 15 days and detoxed. I'm 19 years old. And I thought, okay, I never want to do heroin again. Doing pills are okay. Doing meth and cocaine and four locos, four locos. Yes. All of that was okay when I was 19, but just never do heroin. I mean, and I try to forget about it. I mean, I would never have told anybody back then uh, that I was an ex-heroin addict. And um, yeah, I turned 21 in Las Vegas. And once you turn 21 in Las Vegas, it's like a whole nother like part of the city is unlocked to you. Like you've reached this other status because there's so many places that are inside casinos. And I mean, for the most part, to be inside a casino, you have to be 21 years old. Mm -hmm. And uh, or with your parents. So I'm going out to clubs every night and uh, I'm casually using drugs at this time. It kind of starts. I mean, the cycle starts all over again. You know, I want to impress people. And uh, I think that this is the thing to do. Like, this is what everybody does. You know, everybody's doing coke. Everybody's getting drunk every night. And uh, yeah. And I started taking pain medication, Percocet, Vicodin, lower tabs, it morphed into an Oxycontin addiction again. And like I said, I was told myself I'm never going to do heroin again. I went to this clinic, this methadone clinic, you know, I had this idea for my like sobriety, like I'm going to start taking methadone and every week I want to taper down. So Methadone is like this drug that'll, that they will give you if you're addicted to heroin to, uh, I mean, help you get off heroin or you can be on methadone for the rest of your life, you know, but a doctor gives it to you. So I started doing this and uh, I feel like I'm a slave. Like the way the methadone clinic works is you wake up like four o'clock in the morning. You go there, wait in line. The place is only open from like five to ten o'clock. You wait in line, a nurse gives you your dose, and then you go about your day. And I'm like, I'm doing this every day. I mean, for what seems like it's going to be the rest of my life. And uh, I just want to get off of it. And uh, I started doing methamphetamine. And uh, by this time, I told my mom that I had a problem, you know, um, said pain pills and Xanax. I felt like, oh, that's acceptable. I can't say Oxycontin and methamphetamine. And uh, of course, she's upset. She she wants to help me out in any way she can, like waking me up to go to these to this methadone clinic. 
you know, like constantly asking me, is there anything that she could do? Like, what can she do to help? You know, like what happened? Like, is this her fault? You know, like, of course it's not her fault. Right. You know, I never asked for this to happen. And nobody, I've never talked to anyone who started doing drugs that said like they want to be a drug addict. Right. I mean, there's nothing that anyone could have done for me, especially before I got honest about my drug use. You know, a lot of times I just said I had the flu or I got a sinus infection or. It's crazy how you say that, because I feel like hearing you talk, it's like for me, I'm like, okay, this is a lot to take in. Really? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But like, it's your story. Like, it's like, it's crazy because it's like, I see like where you are now. And it's like, damn, like this dude has been through it. And I'm just like, how do you like respond to this? Like, you know, it's like what you're saying is like you were going through this and like you knew there was an issue and you recognize that. But I think the key thing that like I'm taking away from it is like you knew you couldn't start to heal until you could accept it yourself. Absolutely. And I see it all the time, like especially like with like celebrities and like I think of like the one celebrity I think of is like Demi Lovato. Okay. Third situation. They basically almost had a near fatal overdose. And you think about their story and what they've been through and their documentaries and all of this. And you see their their life unfold in the, in the eyes. And it's kind of like they were sober for six years. And then like they thought they could go back to what they were doing before. Yes. And that's how most overdoses happen is what I, like I've kind of like learned. So, like, have you ever, like, I don't know if this is too personal. But, no, there's but, nothing like, <laughs> too personal. Go have ahead. you ever had, like, that kind of scare to where it was like, oh, shit, like, this could go too far? Um. So, myself, I've never got to the point where I overdosed. I have seen, I've been... <laughs> I've seen other people overdose to the point, like, I've given people CPR twice. I remember, like, there was this one time, this one time that uh, I don't tell this story too much, but um, so I'm uh, I'm with this guy, and uh, we're laying in his bed, and uh, we're watching uh, Family Guy on my phone. <laughs> And there was, like, a funny scene, and I'm like, hey, like, wasn't that, like, super funny? Like, why aren't you laughing? Just me being annoying. Uh, we're high at the time, Xanax, Oxycontin. Um, he drank rum, like, religiously. And um, I go to shake him, like, hey, like, wake up. Like, let me rewind this. Like, watch this. And uh, his lips were blue. And uh, he's laying on my chest. His lips are blue. Like, it's dark, and I can see his lips are blue. And uh, I'm like, oh, my God, like call his name, like, you know, like I'm going to EMT school at the time. Fun fact about me. And they tell you, like, to get someone's attention, you give them a sternal sternum rub, you know, like in the middle of their chest. Right. And I dig my knuckle in the middle of his chest, like wake him up, like get his attention. And uh, he won't wake up. And uh, I pull him out of bed and I yell for his mom, who's in the adjacent room. I'm like, hey, like call 911. I start doing CPR and uh, the paramedics come and, uh, you know, I'm doing CPR until uh, he's in the back of the ambulance, basically. And uh, 
Uh, he was in the hospital for months, and I went to visit him every day. He's doing great now. He's doing great. But that was the scariest moment. Like, I mean, and there's another moment like that, but... That sounds intense and super scary, because it's like, what do you do in that situation? And I feel like you handled it the way it was supposed to be handled. But you it's just tell like, somebody to call 911, and you do CPR and wait for yeah. somebody who's, like, trained to handle that. That's wild. Yeah. I don't know what I would... Like, obviously, like, I would call 911, but that would be... Something, like, I could probably never forget. Yeah. I mean, and, I mean, I don't think of that too often, of that situation too often. But whenever I think of it, it is, like, I get more somber. Now, when I see him on Instagram, I'm just, like, so happy for him. Like, like he's in graduate school right now. And uh, I'm just, like, yeah. Like, obviously, the probably, like, worst moment of his life. And, uh Yeah. So my next question for you is, what was the turning point for you? Okay. So, yeah, I had that situation happen, and there was another situation that happened uh, with a car accident. Uh, I wasn't driving, but uh, one of my friends was driving, and um, he ended up going to prison uh, for six years. And uh, just things like that were happening in my life. I mean, and I hate to trivialize those events and say things like that, but those events happened and I still didn't receive like legal consequences for those. And I felt like, okay, like, oh my God, I skated this situation. Like Vince, you need to uh, get back on the wagon, like slow down, stop going out to to uh, the clubs every night. And uh, I really had no res like real resolve. Like basically it was just like a new year's resolution. Like I'm gonna stop drinking, gonna stop getting high with no follow through. Like there's no plan. There's no steps in place yeah. to show me, okay, what I should be doing. And uh, at this time, like I said, my mom, she knew that I had a problem and I wasn't doing anything really to fix it. And uh, I'm living in her house at the time and I'm just, I'm not doing anything. I mean, toward the end of her relationship with my stepdad, I mean, she was the only person working and he wasn't really going to work. And so she's like maintaining this household and cooking and cleaning and doing all this. Uh, and I mean, rightfully so, like they broke up and she had to kick him out. You know, and she's like, uh, you know, you're my son. Like, you're my only son. I love you. Like, I want to do everything to help you, but you're not doing anything to help yourself. And you're causing me so much stress. And I was disrespectful. She would call me. She would call me nonstop, like, while I was out doing whatever I did, like, you know, getting high. And she would just want to know if her son was okay, if he was still alive. And I'm just not answering the phone. And, uh, you know, to come back home, I mean, days weeks later without having spoken to her and uh she's like i can't do this like you have to go and i think that's like that's like the best thing that she could have done for me and i was upset but i understood because i mean she's doing everything for me you know i'm not even working at this time and i'm probably having a bad influence on my sisters and you know i'm homeless i'm i'm at this time, I'm like prostituting, you know, to like I told you, it was a cycle. I figure out how to get money and 
get high and then just do that everything the next day. And I'm living with these guys and I have no idea who they are really. And uh, I'm, I'm homeless really. And somehow my dad finds out, you know, I'm not doing too well. And at this time I really didn't talk to him much. I hadn't seen him in years. And uh, he's like, do you want to come live with me in Fairfield? And I mean, I don't know if anybody has ever said yes to that question. Like, who wants to live in Fairfield? Shout out to everybody in Fairfield. Uh, <laughs> no offense. Uh, but uh, Coming from Vegas to Fairfield, Ohio is very culturally and drastically different. Thank you. I mean, Vegas is different from everywhere, but at least when I'm in downtown Cincinnati or OTR, I feel like I'm on Fremont Street sometimes or not like on the strip in Las Vegas, but I feel like I'm downtown Las yeah. Vegas. So moving to Fairfield, he said uh, he got me a Greyhound ticket. It was a four day Greyhound ticket and I'm detoxing on this bus ride uh, across the country. And uh, I'm super hungry. And when I get there, it was just like, oh, this is the suburbs. And he lives in a two-story house with this big lawn. And, you know, I mean, I mean, and he's like remarried. And, you know, I, I've never met like my family over here at the time. And I'm like, I've never been to Ohio. You know, like I said, I, I didn't really see my dad in years. And uh, so I move here and he's like, just go to church go to school, don't get a job. That's all you got to do. Just go to church, go to school, don't get a job, and you'll be fine. Like, this is my plan for sobriety. And it's great at this time because, okay, now I had a plan. I'm 25 when I move here. So we're going to church in Hamilton uh, at Front Street Baptist Church uh, every Sunday. And uh, I enrolled in Cincinnati State. Um, but... Like, I'm 25, and I've never lived with my dad. And, and there were rules. Like, I had to come in by 10, and I couldn't have people over. And it was just like, like, dude, like, who are you? Like, I'm grown. I know I'm living in your house, and you have these rules. But, it, I'm like. I'm 25. Like, I'm 25. <laughs> You've never told me what to do because I've never lived with you. So, now you want to tell me what to do, like, and uh, so there was a lot of, uh, like, conflict, uh, like, I don't want to do this, like, you know, where have you been my whole life? And I started, I stopped going to church, and I started working in a restaurant, and uh, we started uh, going out to this bar, uh, right next to the restaurant, not every night, but it was just like, okay, now I'm drinking and I wasn't supposed to be drinking while I was living there. Uh, my second semester at Cincinnati state, like I just started falling off. Like I loved going to school, loved going to school, but, uh, I just wasn't focused on that. Like I'd made some friends at this time and I wanted to go out and, um, I started getting high a little bit, but, uh, he kicked me out on New Year's Eve. It's like 2015, no, 2014 New Year's Eve, uh, dropped me off at the drop-in center, this homeless shelter downtown Cincinnati. So my, uh, exposure to Cincinnati was only between Fairfield and Cincinnati state mostly. So now I'm on 12th street in Cincinnati at this homeless shelter. I've never been more upset at anyone than I had at that time in my life. I'm my dad's only son, and he asked me to come live with me. Like, just indignation on a thousand percent. 
but I I needed that. Like I wasn't like ready to follow the rules, you know. Um, kind of like a blessing in disguise. Uh, yes, yes. Because can... I think that's what parents do is like you might not always agree with like what they do in the moment. Yeah. But I feel like as you get older, you look back and you're like, okay, like I see why they did it. Like I see like the the intentions behind it, and they were pure. And it's kind of like okay, like he tried to help you himself, and he's like, okay, like this isn't working. So now it's like, okay, like now it's up to you. Now there's, I mean, it's like, what do I do? I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, and I mean, who really knows? Like, I mean, cause my parents, like nobody in my family that I know of has ever experienced like a drug addiction, you know? So it's just like, they're, they're at the end of their rope. Yep. So I'm living at the drop-in center and, and it's crazy when I say this, like it was at the time, like I got used to it. Like, I'm like, Oh, I'm not getting drug tested. Oh, I never have to work. So I can just come and go as I please. And, you know, like I'd stop doing heroin by this time, but I'm definitely doing meth. And I, I felt like, okay, like, I guess this is just who I'm going to be. And uh, I was like desperate, you know, but I didn't have a plan. Like there was just no, okay, this is how you get out of this situation. And uh, I'd worked a job and uh, I got fired. I stopped showing up. And uh, I went to someone's house in Florence. Now, at this time, uh, Florence was the deepest I'd ever been in Kentucky. Uh, And this is January 28th, 2016. I meet up with this guy. He says, like, hey, I will give you drugs. I will give you meth. Like, just do whatever I ask you to do, you know. And, uh, I mean, you can use your imagination. So I'm at his house for about three days. He gets what he needs from me. And, uh... The party's over for him. He has to go to work. And I'm like, yeah, I still want to get high. Like, I'm not leaving. Like, I've moved in, basically. And he has no idea. And uh, we get into this fight and, uh, like, a physical altercation. And I call 911. 911 comes and they remove me from the premises. And uh, they search me and uh, they find uh, paraphernalia on me and I get a felony. So I get sent to Boone County Jail. So sitting, getting arrested. This is like not the first time that I've been arrested. I've been arrested like a handful of times in Las Vegas. First time I've been arrested since I moved to the side of country. Uh, but first time that I've been charged with a felony. Now, in my mind, getting charged with a felony, I'm never going to be able to get a good job. I'm never going to be able to get student loans. Like, I'm always going to be like this felon. You know, like Mm -hmm. I'm completely disenfranchised, like I'm never going to be able to vote, you know, and it's so crazy that I thought about those things because I wasn't thinking about any of those things while I was getting high. And uh, I was in Boone County Jail for three months. I was in jail with people who had been to treatment like substance abuse treatment before. And they told me like, hey, why don't you ask your public defender like if they will send you to rehab and uh I was not opposed to that idea. Like I'd been beaten into a state of reasonableness, like long before I got to that long before I got to jail. Like, I'm like, Oh, so this is how I get better. You know, like I'm in jail, I've detoxed, you know, there for three months. I wasn't sold on the idea of being sober while I was in jail. Like I still had plans on getting out and still getting high, but being able to manage it. But when I got sent to rehab, these people would come up and, tell their stories and talk about, you know, basically how they were in my shoes. Like 
and they would use their personal experience. And I just felt like, oh, that person is just like me. Oh, they've done exactly what I've done. And they've been to the places where I've been and they did the things that I did to get that next high. Uh, so how are they over here uh, maintaining this life of sobriety? You know, the first thing they had to do was get honest about their problem. Like, I mean, like I said, when I was younger, I thought, oh, my problem's heroin. Just don't do heroin. You know, and then when I got arrested, I thought, oh, problem's meth, too. So don't do that or or for locos for that matter. <laughs> and um, I realized like, oh, the problem is just the way that I think, you know, like no matter what substance I'm doing. Right. Me drinking alcohol or getting high is just trying to solve like this this problem of me not being able to relate to the world like my reactions the way that I react to the world like I don't have uh this is my, this is the way that I solve my problems like I don't address the problem head on I will numb myself to my problem and the alcohol and the drugs were my solution to my problem so I got honest and I started to you know and I wrote things down I took inventory about you know like the things that I've done in the past and, uh, you know, I would start sharing those with other people and it, it helped really like it's like this therapy, you know, and uh, I started to, you know, contact all these people that I'd done wrong. And I told them like, hey, this is exactly what I did to you. You know, how can I make this right? I think of it as like a tornado. So like a tornado comes to this town. Right. And. It demolishes all the buildings. Well, me in my drug addicted state, I think, oh, the tornado's over, right? My drug addiction. The tornado's over. So everything's okay. Like, this is what I thought in the past. But really, like, the tornado's over, but there's a long period of reconstruction. Like, the tornado's ruined every building in this city. So now we need to rebuild this city. So, yeah, the tornado's over, but there's a lot of work to do. And so, yeah, just me not getting high was not the solution. Like abstinence by itself, like was not sufficient for me to be recovered. Uh, so yeah, I, I had to like continuously work on myself. And like the biggest thing I get to do today is um, try to help other people by going to detox centers and telling the story and asking them like where they had been. Because sometimes Austin, like I will get, like selfish or I'll, I'll forget, you know, like where I've come from, that I've come from like some of the lowest places that people could think about. And uh, I like my ego just was like, oh, like I did this all by myself, but I did not like people had to help me. So because other people helped me through this situation, like I have to go back and help other people. Like, can I give you an analogy? I'm all for analogies. I love them. <laughs> okay. Okay. So uh, think about this ship hitting this iceberg. Okay. Titanic. Right. Mm -hmm. And the ship is sinking and I'm in the water. I'm like drowning. Right. This is my drug addiction. And I don't know that I'm drowning, but I'm clearly drowning. So that moment that I asked for help, right, I, is when I realized that I'm drowning. I stick my hand out the water like, hey, like somebody help me. Like I'm drowning. That's my problem. And somebody who had previously been drowning, but now they're in the lifeboat, like they come out and pick me out, you know, and they're like, oh, my God, like, I'm so happy you told me you're drowning. Like, you know, here, warm up. You know, this is what you're going to do to get better. And then it's like, OK, now, like I have my own lifeboat, 
my job is to go back in the water and pick other people out and show them like, hey, like at the very least, this is how you swim, you know, and like once you learn how to swim, like you go back and pull somebody else out the water and show them how to swim. That definitely makes sense because I feel like that's just life in general. Yeah. Um, it's just like learning from your experiences. Yes. And you have all of this knowledge of like what not to do. And especially like when you're teaching of things like sobriety, it's kind of like, okay, like I was here and I want to help you not get to that point. So like, yes. what are the steps? Like this is X, Y, and Z of how I got to where I am today. And when you think about it, like you're five and a half years sober. Yes. Which is amazing. Thank so you. So congratulations. Thank you. So like now that you've been through all of that and like you're sober, like what is life like now for you? <laughs> you know, like, it's completely, it's probably completely different. So like, what is it like for you now? It's insanely different. Like I, I do, uh, tell this story like my story uh amongst my friends a lot a lot of my most of my other friends are in recovery um and we will talk about these things and joke about them uh so there's like a lot of levity and uh i I don't know like sometimes like i get into this like super derogatory sense like i feel like oh i want to help somebody like so much even you know even if it's like detrimental for me or like inconveniencing to me at that moment because I'm just like uh there are moments where I'm just like very grateful and it's not every day or all day but uh like just sometimes thinking about my life like there's just this sense of gratitude like okay I want to share this with somebody in a nutshell my weekends yes completely different one I'm not in Las Vegas like <laughs> uh, I live in northern Kentucky so on Fridays like we do this recovery meeting and on Saturdays uh, I do this other recovery meeting and uh, it's just like me or somebody else. And uh, we're just going over like, hey, this is exactly what happened to me. Like, take notes. You can't just think like because you quit, right? The tornado, the tornado's over. Like everything's going to be OK. Like all these people in your life are expecting like some kind of like, hey, like you did me wrong. Like, you know, like what's going on like are you gonna make that right or we because we just can't forget about what happened i mean a lot of times when i was younger i just thought like i wasn't hurting anybody but me if i was hurting myself uh like it's not affecting anyone but me so why do you care if i get high or not and i've come to realize like oh i've affected everyone around me because now that i'm sober and there will be occasions where i'm around people who are using and i think like wow like that used to be me, and I thought nobody recognized that I was getting high. But, yeah, there are people in my life, like, sometimes who are getting high, and I'm just, like, you know, like, and not only is it inconveniencing, but it might it might cost me something, like, financially, or, you know, maybe they need a place to stay, or maybe they need a ride to detox, or maybe I have to call in work because, you know, they can't be alone or something because they're dope sick, and I'm just like, wow, I used to be this guy. You know, and I'm glad that I get to be around those people because it reminds me like, oh, if I start getting high again, like this is who I'll be. It's like it comes full circle. Yes. And it's like, okay, I like the analogy of like the tornado and like demolishing everything and just having to rebuild because it's kind of just like it's life. Yeah. You go through life and like shit happens and it's like, okay, what can I do to not only repair relationships, 
but also just better myself. And I feel like you, you exemplify that. It's like, you've been through hell and you've been to like some of the lowest places, like you said, but it's like, now you're five and a half years sober and you're continuously building and becoming a better person. And that's all that matters. Yeah. I mean, and yeah, I'm five and a half years sober. Yes. January 28th, 2016. Like I swear when I get a tattoo, that'll be the first thing I get tattooed on me, no matter what, you know? But just because I've been sober for five and a half years doesn't mean like I'm better than anyone who's been mm-hmm. sober for four years or a week or a month. Like no matter where you are in this process, no matter where that person is in this process, like they have something to offer. Like they have experience that I don't have that can help somebody else. And that is like the principal message that I try to get across. Like Don't think that just because somebody's been sober for 20 years, like they know more than you. It's not even just being sober. That's life in general. Yeah. Like someone can be in a position for so long, but just because someone's newer doesn't mean they don't know just as much. Yes. Like those are the people I get to learn from. Yes. Like you learn every day. And it's, that's the thing is like, you never know what you can come across. Like, yeah, someone might have 20, 25 years of experience and this expertise, but someone brand new can bring fresh new ideas. So it's kind of, that's just life in general. And yes. no matter what walk of life you're in or what kind of stage you're in, whether it's professionally, personally, there's always going to be someone that can teach you something. And that's how I see it. Yes. It's uh, trying to live with humility, you know, like, uh, yeah, if I try to be humble, like remind myself, like I'm not the alpha and omega, then I mean, there's always uh, something that I can take away, like a lesson that I can learn. Yeah, I totally agree with you 100%. It kind of leads me into the next segment of this podcast, which is 2020 and the beginning of this year have been super crazy with the pandemic and everything that's going on. So my question for you is, how have you been taking care of yourself mentally? So I love that you brought this up. And my experience through 2020 and COVID, like... Uh, I worked a lot um, when everything got shut down, like I'm an electrician, so essential worker, right? And so at that time, um, I was going to like a lot of meetings, like trying to help everybody, like every opportunity that I could get, like I would pick people up and, you know, take them to the gym or talk with them, take them out to eat. But when COVID happened, like it was like, oh, I can't do that anymore. And uh, I was kind of like burned out. So being not being able to do that was like a a blessing. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, like pandemic, super serious. Like, please, everybody get vaccinated. Um, Yeah, it was not a bad experience for me. But there was a time to where things started opening back up to where I felt like a little anxiety, like. I don't know like what the world is going to be anymore. And uh, I started going to therapy, like, uh, like counseling. Um, Love therapy. Thank you. Thank you. I literally am going to see a new therapist next week. Yes. So I'm like nervous, but like, I know like this is exactly what I need at this time because it's been a while. Yes. And uh, sometimes like when we talk, when I talk to you, like you'll tell me about how busy you are. And uh, I used, I think like, like, oh, that's how I used to be. And I'm not as busy as I was yep. like when I first got sober, I was running around like there, if I didn't have like three or four things to do every day after I got off work, I felt like, oh, I'm not doing enough. Right. It's like, you feel like you're not doing anything with your life. Thank but, you. Like, for me, 
it's kind of like a negative coping mechanism for me. Uh, it's kind of just like keeping my mind busy to where I don't have to necessarily address um, like what I'm going through. Uh, so it's kind of like working all the time and constantly like doing something, whether it's like working at one of my jobs or yes. like working on podcast stuff or just trying to keep myself busy, whether I'm hanging out with someone. Yes. Um, I've spoke about this in the past on my podcast is like, I hate being alone. Yes. Um, so just like alone in general. So like I have a roommate. Uh, so like when he's here, I don't feel alone. Like we might not be in the same room. I just know that presence is still in the vicinity. Whereas like if I'm by myself, it's completely different, which is why I got a dog. <laughs> Cause it, she helps me a lot. Um, but it's kind of just like, I get it is like staying busy and staying active is my negative coping mechanism. And I think mental health for men is like kind of frowned upon. It's unspoken. A lot. Yeah. So it's just like to speak about therapy and know that like I'm not alone in the situation. It's nice. It's nice to like relate to someone in that sense. Yep. Like um, I present my issues to my therapist and we have a problem and uh, then there's a solution. And the next time I go see her might be the next week, might be a few weeks after she'll ask like, so what did you do about this? I'm like, how does she remember? Cause she's not writing anything yeah. down, but she will remember. And she wants me to follow up with her. And uh, yeah, um, I uh, read these books by this author, uh, Ryan Holiday. Like I, I reread these books a lot. Like the obstacles away, ego is my enemy. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, he has this podcast, and he talked about like, oh, he wants his to do his to do list to be as short as possible. Like he he'll do his writing and hang out with his kids, but anything more than one or two meetings, like that's too much in his day. And I'm like, maybe that's success. Like being able to enjoy my life like and maybe not like do everything that I'm passionate about all the time but do things with purpose uh like with like specific purpose so yeah like I'll go to work every day and yes I work out but other than that I don't want to run around across mm -hmm. town or be on the phone all day and like I just want to do my one thing and it's then finding that balance. Yes. A balance that I struggle with. Yes. <laughs> but I'm learning and I feel like that's all that really matters. So yeah. It's crazy. Cause like I think of 2020 and I'm just like, you talked about like how your therapist, like when you talk to her, she'll follow up like the following week. And like yes. I had a therapist like that in college mm -hmm. um, and it was through Xavier. So like I like met with her like every week. And then like once I left Xavier, like trying to find a therapist that was like as good as her has been so hard for me. Yeah. Cause it's like, Oh, like I don't relate to you or it's, it's okay to like change therapist guys. Like if someone's not vibing with you and you're not feeling it, it is okay to go somewhere else and like look for others. People think like you get one therapist and you have to stick with them. And that's not the case. I like, no, I'm happy that you said that. Also, like, guys, just get into therapy, period. Figure out, like, if you don't like that person or not, you know, like, it's, yeah. And you won't know after the first visit. Right. It's just like, give it some time. But like, if you're not seeing any progress and it's not helping you, got to cut them off. Yeah. Move I mean, on. Move on. And try to find someone new. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, but I appreciate you. 
Um, appreciate you taking the time to just hop on here and be open and vulnerable about your story. Um, Thank you for asking me to be on here. Like just uh, coming here to do this, I was just like, oh, what am I going to talk about? Because I've listened to your uh, episodes before and everyone's talking about like, what are they doing? Like their businesses and, you know, like where they're going in the world. And I'm just like, oh, where do I fit in? (laughs) Everyone has a spot in this world, so. Always remember that, guys. Yeah, thank you. Um, if anyone wants to continue having a conversation with you today, uh, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Uh, the best way for anybody to get a hold of me is on Instagram. So it's at Vince.Charming. So at V-I-N-C-E dot C-H-A-R-M-I-N-G. All right, guys, you heard it here first. Uh, if you want to have a conversation with him, just hit him up. Let him know where you found him. Uh, that way he isn't confused on why you're reaching out. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'll put all of Vince's information in the description below. Thank you guys for listening in. And always remember, find your purpose and ignite your why.